This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joined me to talk about the latest in federal politics. Then, Dr Emma Shortus, a research fellow at the EU Centre of Excellence at RMIT, joined me for an in-depth and extensive analysis of the US presidential election. We discuss what happened, what it means for the US and what it means for the rest of the world, including Australia. Then, finally, Dr Gabriel De Silva, a lecturer in chemical engineering from the University of Melbourne, joined me to discuss the effects of air pollution, particularly bushfire smoke. Gabriel outlines the changes we must make to manage air pollution hazards nationally going forward. And I'm very pleased to be able to chat with Ben Eltham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and he joins me to talk about federal politics. Um, We're going to dive right in, but we probably should acknowledge the um, momentous occasion that we uh, find ourselves in, Ben, which is that um, there is a a new president-elect and it is not Donald Trump. Yeah, good morning, Amy. Uh, Yes, that's right. Uh, Over the weekend, uh, of course, uh, we got enough votes in in the US presidential election to uh, for for it to be quite clear now that Joe Biden is the president-elect and will be the next president of the United States. So um, that's obviously a very important moment for the United States, but it's an important moment for Australia as well because the United States, being a superpower and one of our largest and most important trading partners and allies, of course, affects Australia and Australian politics in a lot of significant ways. Mm. And one of the first things that um, people mentioned here um, was, well, is a a Biden-Harris presidency going to force Australia's hand or at least push Australia to do more on climate change? Because we already saw world leaders recently put pressure on Australia and say, you really can't just turn up to these climate summits and not be committing um, substantial enough action. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, there's no doubt that Biden um, comes into the presidency with uh, the most ambitious climate policy agenda of really any incoming U.S. president. Um, you know, I think it's more ambitious than the Obama years uh, policy agenda. Uh, and so that will put pressure on the Morrison government because Australia is increasingly isolated in international negotiations because of our retrograde, you know, anti-science position on climate change. Um, so that, that that definitely will have implications. But I think it's been a little bit overplayed in the local Australian media. Uh, I still think ultimately that um, local factors, local political factors will determine Australia's uh, approach to climate change. And at the moment, we're, we're still at an impasse because we've got the Morrison government, which doesn't believe in science and is viscerally opposed to action on climate change, is still the government in Australia. And, and so that's not going to change anytime soon. Mm. Well, they are very steadfast in their position on most things, really. They don't back down from almost anything, um, which is surprising and kind of a development because usually there are some things that we draw the line on. But anyway, one of those interesting points um, that we are seeing in the parliament right now is Zali Stegall, who um, is, well, she has already released and um, put forward a climate change bill, which is actually garnering a lot of support outside of 
politics, um, really garnering support from across the major bodies like the AMA, um, like Oxfam, like the Business Council of Australia, um, all of these kind of major um, businesses and even some in the resources sector have recognised that climate change is a massive uh, financial risk to their businesses and the economy. It's also clearly um, an environmental risk and a human life um, risk, and there's so many other factors that we should care about as well. Um, but really, this is something that is kind of ramping up in all other sectors and the pressure that's coming from outside onto the government seems to increase. And Zali Stegall's bill does propose things that are like re-establishing an independent climate change commission, which um, was removed, um, gotten rid of by, I think it was the Abbott government. Um, it also adopts the government's low emissions technology roadmap and would require the government to introduce risk assessment and adaptation plans. And the bill also calls for a process to review the target, the 2050 target, every five years and ensure that there's independent advice feeding into the five yearly emissions budgets. So there are multiple elements to this bill and it really is coming at quite a specific time in our um, I guess, political cycle and economic cycle because we are in a recession and it seems like this is one of the opportune times to put some pressure on the government. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so Zali Stegall's done some really good work here, I think, are my thoughts. Um, she's, of course, the independent member for Warringah. She defeated Tony Abbott at the last federal election. She's a, a moderate, kind of small-L liberal um, you know, she's a, she's fairly conservative on, on some economic issues, um, but she's fairly progressive on climate change in particular. And she's put together a piece of legislation that would get Australia to net zero emissions in 2050. Uh, I think it's a pretty good effort, actually. You know, it's certainly the most uh, thorough and most comprehensive piece of policy that's been put forward in the lower house since the Julia Gillard um, clean energy future legislation, which was, of course, abolished by the Abbott government, as you mentioned. Um, you know, one of the interesting things that, that Stegall has done is she's got a whole bunch of civil society organisations on board. So she's got Oxfam, the Business Council, surprisingly, the ACTU, the AMA, um, all kind of um, getting on board with, with her legislation. Um, and it comes at a time when many big businesses are starting to commit to net zero by 2050 as well. So we've seen a couple of the big banks do this. We've even seen BHP, um, interestingly enough, um, commit to that target as well. So once again, it seems as though the, the Morrison government is increasingly isolated. But, um, you know, we, we must be realistic about this. I mean, this bill is going to fail. Um, it's obviously not going to be supported in the lower house and therefore will not become a law. Um, and, you know, the Labor Party is also deeply divided on climate change as well with um, with the minister uh, or former minister, Joel Fitzgibbon, Labor frontbencher, Joel Fitzgibbon, um, still running a lot of negative commentary on Labor's climate policies. Um, so, you know, climate politics is still going to be very difficult for the foreseeable future in Australia. There's just so many vested interests. There's so much money. Uh, there's so much power lined up behind the status quo of a high emissions economy. Now, that's bad for Australia because actually we're incredibly vulnerable. Um, but that is unfortunately the reality. You know, what we need actually 
um, is political change. You know, and until we get rid of the Morrison government, I don't think we'll get any. Mm, well, we did say in the last election that Labor was trying to hold together a unified line about climate change and their own climate policy, and that seems to have disintegrated quite quickly after the election, as you mentioned. Um, and so, yeah, it is, I guess, disappointing. When you think about it, one of the things we probably should state, um, which is really the bleeding obvious, is why we even need a bill from an independent to be put forward. Um, and that is, well, what is the current state of affairs? What is the current legislative state of affairs in terms of Australia's climate um, approach? And do we have a legislated um, way of reaching our Paris climate targets? No, we've got nothing, Amy. Uh, not, not only do we not have a law, um, but we don't have a policy really either. I mean, the, the Morrison government's policy to reduce emissions um, is basically nothing. There's there's a few odds and sods there. Um, they've inherited some of Tony Abbott's uh, era policies um, around um, paying polluters to reduce their emissions, um, but that's about all they've got. Um, Morrison's talking up what he calls a low emissions technology roadmap. Uh, no one really knows what that is. It's really just a talking point for him to do politics around climate change and to attack the Labor opposition. Um, I mean, we already have the, the technologies, as many people have pointed out. We can do it already. What we need is the political willpower and we need the investment as well, you know. So that's the main thing that a, that a legislated target would provide. It would provide the investment certainty that would then mandate and encourage the investment to get behind all that, you know, new investment that we need. And of course, um, it's not just about energy. I think that's the other thing that, that is always, um, you know, forgotten about in these debates. There's areas of Australia's economy that are deeply carbon intensive, where there aren't necessarily good technological solutions yet. Um, uh, transport's a good one. You know, the majority of Australia's um, car fleet is still fossil fuel based. You know, we've had a very slow uptake of electric vehicles. And of course, if you cast your mind back to the 2019 election, Scott Morrison ridiculed Labor's policies uh, to introduce uh, more electric vehicles in Australia. You know, he claimed Labor would be uh, destroying the weekend by getting rid of people's SUVs. Um, so that's the kind of political gamesmanship that climate policy faces in this country. You know, we simply won't get any any movement from the Morrison government, I don't believe. Um, it's going to require a Labor government uh, for Australia to take climate policy seriously. And um, that's a worry because, you know, <laughs> the Labor opposition is not really in good shape at the moment and that, you know, you wouldn't bet on Labor winning the next federal election. Yeah. No, you certainly wouldn't. And that's probably why Scott Morrison is considering an early election. Uh, next year at some point. Let's also jump in and talk about um, another kind of economic-related issue, and that is um, China and Australia and the trade tensions, which have really started to escalate um, in a very strong way. And we saw that um, China in particular, and this is probably, gosh, going back to November. Where are we now? Um, gosh, I think it was about last week or t 
a couple of weeks ago that China had kind of intimated that um, from November 9, so as in from yesterday, uh, they would be restricting or limiting the import from Australia of lobster, barley, cotton and timber. And, of course, we did hear about um, live lobsters being kind of held in a stasis somewhere over in China waiting to be tested for heavy metals. Um, and China was saying, oh, well, this is just routine procedure. Um, don't get, you know, too paranoid about what's going on here. Um, but then we did see that uh, there were a number of other things happening. Three different um, importers in three Chinese cities were told that um, imports were to be suspended for wine, sugar and coal. And that was about uh, a week and a bit ago. So we have really seen um, an escalation of these uh, restrictions and we're going to have to wait until all the figures come out to see whether, in fact, these threats are, have actually um, come into fruition and by how much in comparison with other um, importers and exporters. Um, so it's something that we've also seen a political dimension to and a race dimension to as well. And a lot of um, politicking and heavy-handed language, particularly from um, Australia and we've seen really, this is a great example um, of how Australia's diplomacy and diplomatic skills and abilities with China, which have been shown to be lacking in previous situations, including with the COVID-19 situation, are still lacking and are really um, kind of ridiculous. Australia held meetings with um, the the people who were exporting into China who were having their goods restricted here from Australia and um, Australia just said, oh, we'll find some other markets then. You know, I think that's probably um, quite a deficient response to, you know, saying that to farmers, for example, who are trying to um, export their goods over into China is just we'll go find another major superpower to sell your things to. Yeah, so uh, as we've talked about a few times on this show, the relationship with China has deteriorated quite markedly under the Scott Morrison prime ministership. Um, you know, things have been going bad for a while, uh, I think, owing to a couple of factors. The first is the increased assertiveness of Chinese foreign policy, particularly in the South China Sea and around issues like Hong Kong. But also, I think Australia, particularly under the the Morrison government has become more assertive uh, against China. You know, we've pushed back um, and the hawks are absolutely in control in terms of foreign policy in Canberra. Uh, and this is not just uh, the people advising Morrison um, and Foreign Minister Maurice Payne directly. This is a kind of cultural thing there with the sort of uh, national security establishment, the kind of people who um, uh, commentate on these issues at the Lowy Institute and the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, people like that. Um, they've all become markedly hawkish on China. So Australia has drifted into really uh, uh, something of a Cold War with China. Um, this, of course, is an international thing. You know, America is, is an intimate part of that. Um, and as a result of that, our trade relationship with China has deteriorated really badly. Um, and China has done the, the, you know, the fairly logical thing, which is um, if they're displeased of Australian foreign policy, they have used trade policy, which is one lever of 
foreign policy that they can use to punish Australia, you know, and that's what's um, causing the lobsters to be held up on the tarmac and um, barley to be uh, to be um, uh, given tariffs and anti-dumping uh, rules and this kind of thing. Um, you know, there's a lot more pain that China can inflict on Australian trade if it really wants to. Uh, China is one of Australia's largest trading partners, if not our largest in most injured industries. Um, I certainly know that from my own industry of higher education. So, um, you know, I think the Morrison government has misjudged the China, China relationship and um, in particular trade. But I, I don't think it's getting any better. In fact, it's going to get worse because at the moment, as I said, the Hawks are in charge and they are not for turning. They are absolutely going to continue a hard line of criticism of China and of pushback on Chinese assertiveness. Um, so I think things are going to get uh, more hostile, not less. Well, what are the consequences, though, of taking such a hard line? Because it seems like this this situation really, from an Australian perspective, we are not in the same bargaining position as China is, and that's just a reality. So why would Australia push and push and push and keep poking the bear even in response to all of this? You don't have to lie down and do nothing, but also the way that Australia is responding is really pushing up the tension. Like there's no, they're not, um, I guess, managing the tensions that are arising and, you know, can't even get a ministerial meeting with their counterparts in China. Yeah, that's right, Amy. I think it's a failure of diplomacy and I think it's a failure to manage the China relationship by the Morrison government. Uh, but this is by design, you know, this is not by accident. Um, you know, there's a group within uh, the parliament uh, that call themselves the Wolverines, believe it or not. Um, and then this is a group of um, backbenchers mainly, but quite influential within both major parties who are very hawkish on China and who are campaigning actively within the parliament and the government for a, a, a hard line on, on the China relationship. Um, so, you know, um, that's not ratcheting down the tensions. That's not seeking a diplomatic outcome for these trade disputes. That's going to ratchet up the tensions. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, until someone's prepared to step in and say, all right, we need a circuit breaker, we need to actually try and get some negotiations going here. We are, after all, not at war with China. We're not in any kind of conflict. They are. They remain a very important partner for us, particularly economically. Um, then, yeah, as I say, I think things are going to get worse before they get better. Mm. Um, one announcement that I believe has just come through is that uh, Daniel Andrews in his press conference has announced that Victoria is making kindergarten free next year and is expanding before and after care, after school care programs um, at 95% of primary schools and um, has specifically said that that's to support working parents, particularly women. Um, so it's interesting here that something that we've talked about post the federal budget that was really um, a no-brainer in a situation, an economic situation like we find ourselves in here in Australia, um, and that worked so well during the pandemic when childcare was free, we have at least seen some kind of movement in this area. It's not exactly the same, of course, but um, Victoria, within its state abilities and controls, is trying to do something that the Morrison government has decided not to do. Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's a fantastic announcement by Andrews this morning. Um, and once again, it kind of shows the, the power of the states. You know, I think that's another thing that we've talked about a few times this year is that COVID has really kind of 
um, uh, I guess, re-educated us about the power of the states within Australia's federation and that the states really do have a lot more policy levers than we kind of remembered that they used to have. Um, you know, and, and so um, if, you've got a, if you've got a fairly left-leaning government in a state like Victoria, like Andrews Leeds, um, you can do some of this progressive policy like, you know, free, free candy and things like that that I think will be very popular. Um, so, you know, I think it, it's, it shows that Australia's federation um, is probably uh, a lot more diverse and probably a lot stronger uh, than we probably gave it credit for a few years ago. Mm, indeed. Um, and talking about women and the subject of, um, I guess, sexism and masculinity, it's interesting that you said the group is called Wolverine. Um, <laughs> I wonder whether any women are in that group. Um, but either way, the name isn't exactly welcoming. But um, one of the things that I wanted to pick up on and that has obviously been making headlines this morning and last night was the Four Corners program, which we saw from Louise Milligan, who, as usual, um, is not an insider and doesn't hesitate in exposing things that, um, you know, she's not going to make any friends through, certainly not any friends in Canberra. Um, and she did highlight this kind of insider culture, which, I mean, for example, anyone like you and I who's followed politics and knows politics intimately would know that this is a very, um, it's an open secret, the things that go on in Canberra. And there are many reasons for that. But we did see two allegations um, be made in that program last night, and they were directed at two ministers um, of the coalition government, Alan Tudge and Christian Porter. Alan Tudge being the acting immigration minister at the moment, but he also had a substantial role to play in social services at the time that these allegations are um, alleged to have the, the activities are alleged to have happened. And then also Christian Porter being the Attorney General of Australia. What exactly um, has happened here or is alleged to have happened here from this um, Four Corners report? And what's the kind of debate that we're having at the moment around these, the conduct of this? Because as you know, um, and as we've discussed on the program before, uh, we saw Barnaby Joyce, who was the Deputy Prime Minister, um, stood down by Malcolm Turnbull, not just because of um, his uh, affair with his staffer, but certainly um, what's been called the bonk ban, um, with, and funnily enough said with a straight face now, is... Um, it's something that now has really been created. It's it's like in the ministerial code of conduct or at least the expectations of behaviour that one would not engage in a relationship that has such stark power dynamics and differences and potential for um, for things to go wrong. Yeah, so um, last night Four Corners aired an episode which contained a number of really interesting allegations about the conduct of two senior ministers in the in the government, um, Alan Tudge uh, and Christian Porter. Of course, Christian Porter is the Attorney General. It's a very important role indeed, first officer of the law in this country. Um, in both cases, uh, the, the reports were basically about relationships with staffers, um, particularly while both the ministers were married, but, but also looking at the, um, the, the kind of... Um, the sleaze, if you like, and also the the sexual harassment and the the power imbalances between ministers and staffers in 
uh, what the program called the Canberra Bubble. Uh, I thought it was a timely program. You're right, it is an open secret that these kind of relationships go on and um, there's no doubt that the Liberal Party has an entrenched culture of sexism. Uh, that's been called out by many senior Liberals uh, themselves, right up to and including Julie Bishop, the former deputy leader. So I don't think I'm uh, making a partisan point there. Um, yeah, some of this behaviour has not been reported before, but it's, what's interesting about it is it clearly fed into Turnbull's decision to introduce that uh, the bonk ban, the ban on relationships between ministers and staffers in the wake of the, the Barnaby Joyce affair. Um, I think it shows, uh, again, that, you know, uh, what people get up to behind closed doors in our parliament is not acceptable uh, on any kind of in any kind of normal workplace. It would not be acceptable, and so it shouldn't be acceptable in the halls of power in Canberra either. Well, it shouldn't be. And um, interestingly, we did see some prominent men come out and um, say, "Well, what's the big deal? Um, why are we getting so hung up on this?" Um, Barnaby Joyce, of all people, has just come out to say it's a consensual relationship between two adults. If you've got a problem with that, that's a role for the police or a priest, but not another politician to be arbiter of how two people feel about each other. I'm not quite sure what that actually means, um, but Barnaby Joyce, you know, has decided to, funnily enough, enter the fray on this yes. subject. <laughs> but what are your thoughts on, oh, well, it's just a consensual relationship because that is also a narrative that's making the rounds in the media and it's something that we should really, I think, explicitly address. Um, I know we've just intimated it, but what is the problem? It's not. It may be consensual, yes, um, but what is the problem? Well, the problem is power, Amy. The problem is that if uh, the person that you're having a relationship with is your boss, uh, then there's a there's a, a deep conflict of interest there between your personal and your public life. Uh, and the problem is, there is that there's, there's every chance for that relationship to escalate to a non-consensual relationship because the person... The, the two people there have a deeply unbalanced power relationship. And whether that is consensual or not, it's unhealthy in my opinion and it's unethical in my opinion. So that would be my issue with it. Um, the other problem is, of course, that, that you know, the, these people are uh, on the public purse. These people are being paid by the taxpayer, uh, in, in some cases to be some of the most um, senior members of the government of this country, you know. So, um, you know, to simply argue that they're having a private consensual relationship while they're at work, uh, I think um, I think that's a that leads uh, some of the issues that are going on here, you know, which are which are actually um, manifestly in the public interest for the public to know about, and clearly not in the best interests of Australian citizens. Uh, and, and and that's before you even get into the sort of hypocrisy issue of people like Alan Tudge talking about the sanctity of heterosexual marriage during the same-sex marriage debate at the same time as having an affair. Uh, that's pretty gross and that's pretty um, that's pretty disgusting, but, but perhaps uh, we can't legislate against hypocrisy because that would be far too hard <laughs> in Canberra. Impossible to enforce. Um, ben, one of the things we should also just mention is that these were um, allegedly affairs that were done in public at... Um, 
parties, even at the midwinter ball, there were, you know, public displays um, between people. So it's interesting. One of the other things that this raises is the culture in Canberra between um, the press gallery, between staffers and politicians of all um, all persuasions, it's not just the government, and how um, when you're inside a tent and um, you're, you're in the centre of power, it's very difficult to have that, um, I guess, scrutiny and transparency. And uh, when, you know, someone did take a photo of a, a particular situation playing out, it's alleged that, um, you know, someone asked for that photo to be deleted. So this is the, also the culture in this um, in this story has been highlighted as being problematic and having repercussions for so many other areas of our politics. And that's one of the other interesting things that I think we not, I don't think we learned anything necessarily. Um, if anyone who's been watching politics may not be surprised, but um, certainly I think it probably surprises someone who doesn't pay close attention to um, politics in Canberra. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not pretty when you see it up close, and I have seen it up close. I've been to the public bar, um, and I have had drinks with politicians and journalists at the public bar. Um, you know, uh, there's too much alcohol in politics, full stop, in my opinion. Uh, there's a lot of people who have substance abuse problems in politics, in my, in my opinion, quite frankly. Um, and it's actually time we talked about that side of the issue as well. Um, there's also, I think, an uncomfortable and, and I think um, dangerous culture of predation, particularly upon younger female staffers within the parliament and within our political system. Uh, it, it's fed into by a masculine, quite misogynistic culture, particularly um, in the Liberal Party, but also in aspects of other major parties as well. All the parties have had their problems in this regards, even the Greens, you might recall. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and, and this, I think, again, um, is a problem of power. You know, it's a problem uh, of people who spend their lives in the production of power and in the manipulation of other human beings to get what they want. It's very hard, I think, in that kind of situation to... Um, to recognise where the boundaries are because much of what politicians do is, a, is about pushing the boundaries, actually. It's about, um, it's, it's about using other human beings for your own purposes. There is a kind of level of baked-in psychopathy to the very profession uh, itself. Um, and so I think that it's all the more important for, for we as citizens to demand um, higher standards of conduct in this regard. Mm. Um, you know, like, I don't think there's any easy answers to this, right, because they are human beings and um, human beings um, have all sorts of human failings and foibles. Um, but, you know, where we as citizens have a right, I think, to be really angry is when you look at some of the individuals here. Like, look at Alan Tudge, right? At the same time he was having this affair with a staffer, he was also implementing robo-debt. Right, he was also implementing a draconian system uh, of public policy that had tremendous impacts on ordinary Australians who had done nothing wrong. Okay, that cost the taxpayer three quarters of a billion dollars. Right, maybe if Alan Tudge was, uh, you know, actually paying attention to what was going on in his portfolio uh, rather than engaging in extramarital affairs. I don't know, maybe you might have realised that, that RoboDebt was a big mistake. I don't know, but, you know, like that's the kind of thing that I think people should ask questions about.
Mm, certainly, absolutely. And um, it's will be interesting to see how uh, things progress in terms of uh, Scott Morrison's response because we've seen um, in previous instances like, uh, for example, when Erica Betts questioned um, three Asian Australians and um, asked them to prove their loyalty. We saw no apology from Erica Betts and no apology from Scott Morrison uh, on his behalf. I wonder whether we will see any action from Scott Morrison on this um, in the same way that we saw action from Malcolm Turnbull. I'd be very surprised if we saw any action from Scott Morrison on this. Yeah. We'll have to wait and see, Ben, won't we? Um, you never know. 2020 is proving to be a very surprising year, but uh, we'll hold out hope that there is some um, form of transparency or increasing transparency in Canberra one day. And uh, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks, mate. Got to go. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Uh, we are going to talk now with Dr Emma Shortis, who is a research fellow at the EU Study Centre, and um, that is based at RMIT, that centre, and Emma is a trained historian. She has a PhD in an... Um, history, particularly looking at the history of Antarctica and environment policy, and of course the US plays into that as well. And um, Emma had the great pleasure of spending some time over in the US herself, studying over at Yale as well. So she's had a really um, great chance to experience firsthand how America is, and I'm sure she soaked up a lot of the politics, and it's so great that um, when I first chatted with Emma on this show back in the start of 2017. Emma was actually over in the US and that's how we first got to know about Emma. So I'm so glad that I now get to welcome back onto the show after appearing so many times um, over the last four years to talk about a major development in US politics, one that we have really, you know, been looking to for a very long time and has now come to fruition. So welcome, Emma. Thank you so much for joining me again. And uh, also congratulations and hats off to you for doing such a phenomenal job informing the public and um, doing all these media interviews. You've been in high demand and is it any wonder? Oh, thank you, Amy. You're too kind. Yeah, it's it's been a, a busy week. I'm I'm pretty tired, but um, no, it's it's been a really, as you say, it's a it's a hugely significant development in American politics, which of course is is still playing out. It is, it is, and one of the things that you often hear, or I think might even pop into some people's minds is, well, why do we care about U.S. politics? You know, maybe they're a lost cause. Um, they certainly have got their own issues. Um, things are always so chaotic, or at least in recent times have been very chaotic in US politics. What on earth, you know, why why do we care about US politics? And that certainly um, has come up, at least the argue for why we should care. It has come up in the conversations we've had in the past around the Supreme Court. Um, but it, America, um, whether it likes it or not, has had huge influence in global politics and policy, and um, it continues to do so even when it does um, some pretty crazy things um, in terms of breaking conventions of all kinds and um, changing course in global policies. So from your perspective, just so we can prepare the ground, 
Why do you think, you know, we focus and have focused so much on American politics in recent times? Because every election, every presidential election, you've seen growing interest, not just um, in Trump, but even before Trump, in, in presidential elections. And I think here in Australia, it wasn't necessarily as pronounced as it used to be. Yeah, look, I think that's true. I certainly think interest has grown, especially as the kind of spectacle of American politics has gotten wilder and wilder over the last few years. But look, I think for better or worse, the United States is the most powerful country in the world and has been since the end of the Second World War. It's the world's biggest economy. And so it has enormous influence on global politics and and our kind of daily lives. And I think One of the most obvious examples of that, just even in the last couple of days, Amy, has been around the election of Joe Biden and his climate policy. So Joe Biden has quite a, especially if we consider the kind of the recent past of climate politics, Biden's climate platform is really radical. He has committed to net zero emissions economy by 2050, and that that's going to require radical economic reform in the United States. And that, of course, affects us to the point that, you know, where there's a reluctance to talk about climate politics as, as part of mainstream politics in Australia. But, you know, when Scott Morrison was kind of giving his um, statement, I guess, congratulating um, Joe Biden just the other day, the very first question he got was about Biden's climate policy and how that's going to influence Australian policy and the role that Australia plays in the world, our relationship, not just with the United States, but with other countries and, and places like the European Union, which, of course, is pushing hard on climate action as well. So there are very real and very immediate consequences for us and for our government especially to navigate. So I think, you know, again, that's just kind of one example how quickly um, the United States can shift the terrain of of global politics and, and one of the many reasons why it matters to us here. Mm. And certainly uh, China has also done some major things in terms of climate policy as well. So when you're seeing, you know, the two major powers in the world moving faster on climate change than Australia, um, you know, and having, I think, far more challenges to do so, we are well placed to actually confront climate change and deal with it. And we saw um, even with a so-called carbon tax um, that emissions did actually go down and, you know, the world didn't collapse, Australia's economy didn't burn to the ground. Um, So it is interesting to see that. And one of the things that we might get to a bit later in this conversation is the um, Biden foreign policy position, because, of course, that was something that did come up during the election. And a lot of people um, in the media in particular and um, Trump supporters were saying, oh, well, you know, you're a socialist and, um, you know, you'd be friends with like all the socialist dictators. And um, and Joe Biden was making every effort um, to to prove his credentials that he wasn't a socialist. And of course, coming looking at that from Australia, it kind of seems quite absurd and odd. Um, but that is something that is obviously quite specific to America in terms of their their hang-ups um, with the left and extreme left, um, so to speak. So we will get to that in just a minute. But I want to take our minds back uh, a week, really. It's not that long ago, but it feels like a lifetime ago. Um, we did have voting occurring on Tuesday... Uh, America time and was it Tuesday? It was Tuesday. Am it I was, right? yeah. yeah, I'm yeah. still like Wednesday our time in a daze. Yeah, Wednesday was the day that we were all at 
particularly in the evening, um, but even earlier, looking at the results coming in and getting a bit nervous uh, about what was going on. And it was a lot of drama occurring. And we did see some of these um, big states go to Trump early. So we saw thing, uh, states like Florida um, that really got a lot of people nervous. Um, and maybe it shouldn't have been surprising, but uh, it certainly was. And there were some counties in Florida that got people nervous that because they had flipped um, and gone to Trump. And even though Florida is a um, Republican uh, type state, it's like the governor is Republican. Florida is a very important um, state in this uh, presidential system and the electoral college. And it, each state, we should say, and we have mentioned in the past, but it is kind of important to mention because it's very different from Australia's um, electoral system, is that they all have a certain number of electoral votes depending on which state you win. So you have to get to a certain number of votes to actually win the presidency, electoral college votes. So I'll let you um, get into more detail about that and do it far better than I. But Emma, when you were looking on Twitter and watching the results come in and you saw Florida um, what were your thoughts at that time and how did we see things start to evolve in terms of the early results that were the in-person voting results? Yeah, sure. So you're right that, that Florida was kind of the first big call in those really consequential states that tend to kind of swing between um, Republican and Democrat. So so when Florida was, was looking early on like it was going to go to Trump, it certainly gave me pause for, for a number of reasons, not, not the least of which is that in um, the previous election, of course, Florida falling to Trump was basically the beginning of the end for Hillary Clinton. That's when it sort of became clear that she wasn't going to win. And so Florida going for Trump, to Trump again, I think, gave, gave a lot of people pause for that reason. Also, because, I think of it course, was triggering. It was. It was a little bit of, yeah, I think a little bit of that muscle memory. Um, yeah. Because um, Florida also, of course, decided the, the 2000 election, which was a very close election. Um mm. And there were early indications, I think, out of Florida that, that gave people reason to worry. And one of those was, you, you mentioned, Amy, those kind of county-level counts. So so Miami-Dade in particular, which is supposedly a kind of left-leaning um, county, you know, it sort of tends to lean Democrat, went for Trump. And so there were there was a lot of kind of prognosticating on Twitter about how this, this is this is voting very badly for Biden. If, if a place like Miami-Dade, which is supposed to be left-leaning, is going for Trump, you know, we're in big trouble. But of course, as you know, a lot of people also subsequently pointed out, Florida was never critical to Biden's path to victory. His campaign had never seen it as central. It certainly would have been handy to win and, and would have been a really strong showing for Biden early on, but he didn't need to win Florida in order to clinch the presidency, as is, as is obvious, of course, now. But Trump did. And so it, it certainly heartened Trump supporters at the time that, that Florida was going their way. But then sort of over the course of of the evening, it became clear that that nobody was going to win in that massive line, landslide, which I don't think it, I don't think anybody who pays attention to American politics and that the way that the presidential elections are structured, Amy, because as you said, the the popular vote isn't actually relevant to who who's elected president. It doesn't decide who's elected president. So the fact that Biden was, you know, 10 points ahead or whatever in national polls, while it was a really good indication for Biden, didn't necessarily mean he was going to win. And and his administration, knew, sorry, his campaign knew that all along. But, and they had decided specifically to focus on 
winning back the so-called blue wall. So so the states like um, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania that had gone to Trump in 2016, Biden's, Biden's kind of whole promise was that he could win back the blue wall. He could win back particularly those white working class voters who had gone to Trump in 2016. And sort of over the course of Time's kind of, you know, <laughs> all blurring together. But but over the course of a few days, it's sort of it, basically what happened because the count the count is run, is run differently in each state. So some states counted started counting mail in ballots and absentee ballots early, and so had strong showings for for Biden and the Democrats early. And some states did it the other way around. They counted in person votes first and then counted mail in ballots. So that's why we had this kind of hodgepodge of, of results coming through. So somewhere like Georgia, for example, the state of Georgia, they were counting in-person votes first. So we saw Trump having quite a significant lead in Georgia to the point where there was a lot of assurances that Georgia was gone to, to Republicans and we could forget about Georgia. Once Georgia starts counting those mail-in ballots and and particularly the, the absentee ballots and the mail-in ballots that had been mobilised by a huge on-the-ground voter enrolment effort led by Stacey Abrams, Democrat Stacey Abrams, it then became clear that Biden was actually catching up in Georgia and Georgia was essentially on a knife edge. Mm. And a similar thing happened in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania where initially Trump has kind of a significant lead because they're counting in-person votes and that turns out to be a so-called red mirage where it, where it looks like Republicans are ahead but, in fact, as votes are counted, as those votes are rolling in, Biden is catching up very quickly. And so that's what happened in, in Michigan and Wisconsin and also Arizona, which was, an I think, you know, not not getting a whole lot of attention in in national discussions about oh. how this was going to play out, and and Arizona is a really, I think, a really interesting one because it is again a, a pretty, um, or historically, it's been a pretty safe Republican seat. It hasn't gone Democrat for for decades, I think, since Bill Clinton was president, and so it sort of didn't factor into to many conversations. But there, are some early analysis is suggesting that there was a kind of unexpected thing at play in that. John McCain, who was a Republican senator for Arizona, he um, ran for president against Barack Obama in 2008 and passed away a couple of years ago. And he was a kind of a, a foil to Trump, I guess. Trump Trump hated him and treated him with what many would describe as as really kind of appalling disrespect. You know, this, this is the guy that, that was a um, prisoner of war in Vietnam and, and Trump said early on, you know, a couple of years ago, oh, he's, he's not a hero. I, you know, I like heroes who don't get caught. So he, in and in the context of American politics and the kind of um, valorization of, of military service, that was that was seen as something that almost should have killed Trump's career then and there. And it seems like all of that and and Trump's continual criticism of McCain, even after he died, has pl- played for Trump really poorly in Arizona and actually factored into decision making there in a way that polling and and pre polling just just didn't really capture. And so I think there's there's lots of really interesting things going on in the ground, kind of on the ground in the, at the kind of state and, and even county level that show really just what a complicated mess the American electoral system is. Mm. Yeah. And, and Arizona and Arizona flipping, I think, was was an indication, a, a sort of early indication that, that Biden was on a path to victory. And as much as that wasn't called until I think if I've got my days right, Amy, I think it was on Saturday, our time, that, that it was finally called for Biden. I think a couple of days before then it was it was pretty clear that that that's where things were heading. 
Yeah. And, I mean, John McCain is really, well, was really a statesmanlike figure. He had a lot more significance to American politics than just any politician. So, yeah, it, it certainly was something I don't think potentially, well, clearly they didn't factor in because um, Trump had visited Arizona quite a lot and had put a lot of um, time into it. And one of the other interesting parts about Arizona, which I particularly enjoyed, was that Fox News called Arizona for Biden first Mm. and had Biden ahead for a very long time um, before any of the other news outlets decided to call Arizona for Biden. So, um, you know, there are such things as decision desks, which are, you know, these polling um, and statistical analysts who are very expert in doing this and they do it with every election and um, they are independent. And we did see that when um, Fox News called Arizona for Biden, that really um, riled up Donald Trump and also the rest of his campaign. And um, certainly a lot of political pressure was put onto Fox News to reverse their decision. And uh, and interestingly, they didn't. And they held the line and they were very clear um, and, and stood their ground and supported their um, decision desk people. Um, and it was very interesting, I think. I wonder what you, you thought about um, the way that the media was calling this, because they have an important role to play in the election results as well. Of course, they don't change the results, but they're the ones looking at the trends, looking at how much, how many votes are left to be counted and um, really predicting whether a certain state is going to go to which candidate so that the we can see how the poll is tracking, how many electoral college votes are tracking for each candidate, and then we know who the, the presumptive um, president will be. So I was interested in your thoughts because you were watching Fox uh, occasionally, like I was, I saw on Twitter. And if you take Tucker Carlson out of the equation for one minute, and maybe Hannity <laughs> as well, if you take them out, what were your thoughts on on the way that Fox approached um, things like calling Arizona and the type of um, pressure they had, and what potentially um, were there any motives for being the first to call Arizona? Look, I think that's a really, it's a really interesting question. And, and to me, as yet, to be honest, it, it's it's sort of unclear because because that decision was a really significant one to call that. I mean, it, was, it wasn't kind of getting ahead of results, as you say. Oh. It was reflecting the results as they were. But for Fox to be the first one to make the call was really significant. And you're right, Amy, it apparently just enraged the Trump campaign to the point where they're sort of, you know, having screaming phone calls with, with Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> and it was, it was absolutely the correct call. And I think, you know, part of what we we were seeing with Fox is that division between the news desk and the kind of opinion section of Fox mm. News, not 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 dissimilar to what we see in, in something like Sky News here, where the news desk is being sort of fairly resolute in in calling the election as it is happening. And and I think had been preparing for a long time for, for Trump, you know, doing things like refusing to concede or um, suggesting that there's been fraud. And, and part of the reason that the other networks were so reluctant to make early calls, even when it was fairly obvious what was going to happen, was because they were so so conscious of how they needed to to ensure that people believed in the integrity of the calls that they were making and in, and in the integrity of the count that was happening on the ground. So so I thought you know there was quite a bit of conversation here, for example, that 
the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, mm. Anthony Green was calling some states much, much earlier than than they were calling them in the United States. And that was partly because, you know, the Australian media, of course, doesn't have the same kind of influence in the US and didn't have to necessarily be conscious of, I guess, the the optics and how what they were doing could influence the conversation, even to the point where, you know, the US... US networks have to be careful about calling things too early because of the the vast time zone differences between the coasts. You know, if you call the East Coast too early, that can actually affect turnout in mm. in the West Coast. So the media, I think, was was more than usually conscious of, of the kind of influence they could have, you know, and watching, you know, something like CNN where I just lost count of the, the amount of times I, I heard it's it's too early to say that or, you know, we'll get those results soon. We can't say yet what's happening. Um, and that I think that's part of this this broader effort to anticipate what the Trump administration is going to do and a very belated recognition that, that what Trump is doing, what he has been doing for a number of years now, is an all-out assault on the integrity of American democracy. And I think what we saw, you know, with media kind of making calls or being being sure to wait and be certain was a recognition of that fact of what Trump was doing and that that what he was doing in especially in in talking about fraud and elections being stolen is very very dangerous and and overall I think the media had responded very well to that. I, I mean, I'll, I'll go back to Fox and what you're saying, Amy, about, you know, taking Tucker Carlson out of the equation. We thought Biden was a hologram, like, yeah, yeah. and that Democrats were going to force Americans to drink Starbucks instead of corner store coffee. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Like it, it is, it is absolutely wild to watch. But I think sometimes we, you know, we, we tend to treat this as, we tend to treat Fox as not part of the mainstream, but mm. but it is it is mainstream yep. in in the United States, and I think part of what is going on here is not you know I think people sometimes hope for a, I guess a new era of bipartisanship, and is is this you know Fox finally recognizing that that Trumpism you know is toxic and that they need to work to heal America? I don't think that's what's going on. I think what's happening is about self preservation mm. and recognizing where power is going to lie and responding to that accordingly. And I think Fox will continue to play the role that it has played in being in inciting that division and I think stoking conspiracy much as it did during the Obama years. You know, Fox will probably go back to being that oppositional force with underpinned by, you know, 70 million plus Americans that chose to go out and vote for Trump. You know, in a non-compulsory system, they yeah. they actively chose to go out and vote for Trump. And that is something that the, the Biden administration is is going to have to grapple with. Mm. Well, also, um, voter turnout, as you say, was very high. And um, we saw, you know, Joe Biden's talking about the fact that um, really he has had the largest popular vote of any president-elect. So, you know, he um, noted the huge turnout and uh, Donald Trump had a huge number of votes as well. So, yeah, it is. It's very important to to note just how um, substantial a change that is, because it's been such a Achilles heel of America and American democracy to not have compulsory voting and to see such low numbers, especially um, with the Hillary Clinton election, where we saw that younger people didn't go out in the numbers that we had hoped that they would. Um, and so, there are when you see different segments not engaging politically, it makes 
a huge difference to the final outcome, which I guess is clearly not that surprising, but it is, um, you know, changes the way that America is for the next four years. Um, I want to pick up on some other states that are really critical and that were very critical. And we did see, and you've referenced um, there as well, that Joe Biden has so rebuilt the so-called blue wall, um, which, as you said, was about um, traditionally working class, largely white um, voters, but of course not solely white voters. And um, they were in some of the states like uh, Wisconsin and Michigan and even Pennsylvania. Um, and we certainly saw some really strong changes there, um, although it is still quite close um, and some of them still haven't been called um, definitively. Uh, we are still waiting for the final vote count, but they have been called. Um, so we saw in order, um, let me just go back, we saw Wisconsin called, then we saw Michigan called, then we had this kind of stasis um, where we were waiting and waiting and waiting for votes to be counted. And um, I think it's important now to bring in what Donald Trump was doing, um, because this is really very vital to what we're seeing right now, um, to what we're seeing play out in terms of how um, the presidential election is going and the transition is going. And that is that we saw Trump um, make two speeches, really. The first one was um, really, really late. I think it was about, was what was it, like 2 a.m. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, yeah, Washington at the White House. It was a campaign event at the White House um, with heaps and heaps of uh, Republicans, no masks um, that I could see were being yeah. worn. Uh, lots of, you know, screaming, yelling. There were... A, I reckon about 50 American flags, or at least that's what it looked like, um, you know, with the special American president, um, you know, song being played when he walked in. So this was really quite a break from convention by using the White House, um, by, you know, using all the props of the presidency for something which should have been a campaign-style event. Um, and he was basically saying, well, actually you know, frankly, we did win. So that was kind of the first speech that we saw Trump kind of ramble um, and say some quite, you know, outlandish things and put doubt um, into people's minds about whether this vote was, um, you know, robust, whether there was fraud um, involved and um, him actually, you know, way too early declaring that he was actually um, the winner. And then we did see later on this other speech, which I'd love for you to also pick up on, um, which was in the, uh, what, what's it called, like the press room. Um, and he got up on the podium, gave this speech and took no questions and walked off. And that really, um, you know, I think was one of the, the biggest sparks really for um, a lot of the media to put their foot down and start to um, really really call out some of the things that Donald Trump was doing. So from your perspective, watching those two speeches, um, which which do you think was kind of really pivotal and how do you think it's it changed um, things, not, not the outcome, of course, but how do you think it's affected things? Well, I mean, I guess, I guess what I would say to that is that we, we knew 
that Donald Trump was going to do this. Like he had been signalling for months, really, that he he was going to refuse to concede. There were a couple of stories that came out just before election day where, when they sort of said exactly that. You know, if it looks like it's close in those blue wall states, Trump is going to to refuse to concede or or to start questioning the validity of those votes. So we knew he was going to do this. You know, we weren't exactly sure when or exactly how it would play out, but we knew it was coming. And so I think that's where, again, you know, the media were prepared for what was going to happen. And it was always going to be, and I, I think I've sort of been saying this for a while, it's, we know we knew what was going to, what Donald Trump was going to do. And so what was going to be critical was how institutions around him responded to it. To it. That was going to decide, I suppose, whether this assault on democracy would be effective or if it would be contained. And at the moment, at least, it looks like the, the media reaction in particular and, and some institutional responses, in speci- especially at the kind of state level, have largely succeeded in dampening down that threat, at least, you know, in the, in the kind of immediate aftermath of the election. No- nothing is, is certain, of course. Um but it was it was still, I think, Amy, you know, quite extraordinary even to know that this was coming, to know that Donald Trump was going to do this, but then to actually see a president of the United States come out and claim fraud in this way. And as much as, you know, I've spoken about the, the media kind of responding well, I think, you know, he is, he is still being supported in that by the people around him, by his administration, and by figures, important um, figures in the conservative media like Tucker Carlson, like Sean Hannity, and surrogates like Newt. Gingrich, you know, on going out on Fox News and and questioning the validity of of the ballots. And I think it's also, it's really important to acknowledge the way that Trump's, the the kind of white supremacist underlinings of, of Trumpism and Trump support play into that. Because in those, you know, you mentioned the kind of the, the, the blue wall, Amy, and that, that we've talked about that promise that Joe Biden made to win back the white working class. In those states, white people in America generally kind of white people have have voted for Trump they they've been very clear in making that choice and I don't think we can sort of make the argument anymore that it's not about racism you know I think it very clearly is and that shows at the kind of state level in somewhere like Pennsylvania where early on you have the kind of counting that's reflecting that red mirage which is largely coming from pre- predominantly white rural counties and then as time goes on as those days goes on, go on you see counting coming in from a place like Philadelphia which is much more diverse and has a much higher population of African Americans for example who voted over- overwhelmingly for Biden and what you see in what Trump is doing and, and what Fox News are doing is basically saying that the early votes counted, the early votes essentially cast by white people, they count. And the ones coming in later from places like Detroit, which Tucker Carlson called something like the worst governed place in the Western Hemisphere, and then went on to say, those people in Detroit, they are deciding on who your president is. And I think that is a very, very clear racist dog whistle to Trump supporters. And so as much as you know, the media is responding very well. And even in that second speech, Amy, cutting away from Trump altogether and, and in, yeah. a, in a way really undercutting his power. And I think potentially kind of drawing a line under under that power that Trump has had over the media as president, where the media is now pivoting to treating him much more like a kind of 
maybe not a normal guy, but you know, not not with su- not allowing him to have such power over the narrative to to see the ground shifting that way. But I think that you know both things can be true at once. That 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 is happening in the media is responding well, but the racist dog whistling is is still happening, and it's very much connected to to the integrity of the the American political system. Mm, I'm glad you brought that up because um, Philadelphia is where we've seen um, a lot of criticism from um, the Trump campaign and we have seen that there are legal challenges on many levels in um, many different states Uh, and of course we've been watching so much um, legal discussion (laughs) happening Um, you know is there any chance that these Uh, these lawsuits will have any success. And um, this morning on RN Breakfast, uh, we heard from the lawyer who really led um, the Florida case, Barry Richard, and he was saying that he saw that there would be no merit or chance in any of the lawsuits that had so far been filed by the Trump campaign. So um, it's interesting that, you know, we saw all this bluster from Donald Trump about saying, quote, we're hearing stories that are horror stories. We think there is going to be a lot of litigation because we have so much evidence and so much proof. Well, you know, all the legal experts have said there is no evidence or proof um, in any way that, you know, there's been widespread fraud that would change the outcome of the election. It hasn't been stolen from Donald Trump. Um, you know, the democracy or the, the system, the electoral college system and voting system has played out as it had intended. That doesn't mean that there aren't flaws, though, and we've highlighted um, those flaws in previous conversations about, um, you know, voter suppression and Mm. disempowering um, American voters in so many different ways. So, you know, it's not perfect, but there is no grand Democrats conspiracy to um, steal the election from Donald Trump, um, which I think is you know, clearly important to keep on reinforcing because there's another, there is another reality that not just Donald Trump wants people to think is real, and that is that there is some kind of merit, even a, a slither of a merit, to what he's actually saying, and there isn't. Um, and one of the things, one of the critiques that we saw um, on Twitter, which I guess is not that representative of the whole world, but we did see um, some people criticising the way that um, Australian media had been reporting Donald Trump's speech by saying that we should have been clearer to say that it was um, alleged that there were false claims um, instead of running banners that really just quoted him verbatim without you know, putting it in context and providing the critical analysis and um, what the, the major... American news outlets were doing, which was, you know, really saying it's false, it's baseless, it has no evidence in reality, there's no evidence, there's no um, reality to these claims. What are your thoughts on the fact that, you know, we um, saw Australia kind of behind in the way that we were reporting the the types of claims that Trump was making that really completely outraged so many Americans who rightly felt that their own um, democracy was under attack. It has already been under attack, but they felt like this was one of the most um, blatant and bald-faced um, attempts. 
Yeah, look, I think that's exactly that's exactly what it was, and and it is ongoing. And I think, look, there's there's definitely been a, a sort of mixed reaction in Australian media. I think I think there's a little bit of complacency, a little bit of this kind of, well, this is happening, you know, over there, and we can mm. just kind of watch, so we don't have the same weight of responsibility for what is going on. And look, I think up to a point that is true. You know, I don't think Australian media is is influencing necessarily what is happening in the United States, but at the same time we we are deeply connected not not the least by of course someone like Rupert Murdoch of course who has yeah. a huge amount of influence here in Australia and I have seen Amy exactly as you said quite a quite a lot of coverage in Australia which did things like say Trump declares premature victory you know without any scare quotes or whatever and then mm. Biden, you know, Biden says he is, scare quotes, on track to victory. So there's certainly that kind of partisan coverage going on. And we even saw some, you know, some liberal conservative MPs talking about how the election had been stolen from Donald Trump. So I, I think we're seeing yes, very similar yeah. problems in, in our media and, and in our politicians. And I do think Australian media has been kind of reluctant to engage with that conversation, you know, has has kind of seen itself as separate from, from what is going on in the United States and somewhat immune from the kind of problems that are plaguing the US. But I think, again, that that's pretty complacent. You know, I, I do think we have a stronger democratic system with more integrity than the United States does, purely because we have things like compulsory voting or an independent electoral commission. But that doesn't mean that we should be complacent because there are there are those really significant connections between us and the United States and particularly around things like the media but of course those white supremacist networks you know we we know that that has real consequences and has had real consequences in places like Christchurch so i do think that we need to be careful in how our coverage looks to the United States because it does you know in in some ways it does get imported here yeah yeah, that's a really excellent point. Uh, I'm speaking with Dr. Emma Shortis from RMIT, and we're talking about the US election. Um, so we got to a point where uh, at about 3.30 in the morning, I can't even remember, was it on, what was it, Sunday morning or Saturday morning? <laughs> I'm not going to even pretend I know what day. I don't remember. <laughs> it was sometime on the weekend anyway. It was very exciting, and I was somehow awake. I, I, I was asleep, and then I woke up. I must have had a sixth sense that something was going on and check Twitter and literally one minute ago, Associated Press calls Pennsylvania for Biden. And um, it was, well, I think a, a relief for some people, a lot of people in America and was very, um, you know, exciting for a number of people in Australia as well. Of course, it's not the same for everyone, um, but we did see that call be made finally um, and that really was a very significant point. And Joe Biden had been waiting until it was abundantly clear, at least from the call, that he would then give a speech to then officially claim victory. Um, and traditionally, you would then see a concession speech from the loser. That would be Donald Trump. And at the time that we saw this call being made, Donald Trump was um, playing on his golf course in Virginia uh, he then did that again the next day. So he's been playing a lot of golf as he had been throughout his whole presidency. Um, but we did see, you know, some really interesting commentary about the way that Trump has responded um, to 
this situation. Um, one that I loved was CNN's Anderson Cooper saying this was after the speech that we had seen and we've just been referencing um, in the White House, the second speech. We see him like an obese turtle on his back, flailing in the hot sun, realising his time is over, but he just hasn't accepted it and he wants to take everyone down with him, including this country. Um, and watching that live with such a deadpan delivery was probably one of the most, you know, funny but also like quite deeply serious moments Mm -hmm. Um, and that was before we saw Pennsylvania called. We have seen Trump continually deny that he's lost going playing golf, seeing Rudy Giuliani turn up in front of what was it? The Four Seasons. Total landscaping. Total landscaping. I should have that burnt into my brain. But um, it was a Philadelphia groundskeeping company situated between a crematorium and a sex shop. And um, that was the moment that it was called and Rudy Giuliani was, um, you know, going, oh, what's being called? Pennsylvania. Um, tell me, Emma, about how the Trump campaign is now behaving um, from that point. Of course, it's been happening, you know, throughout this um, results season or time of at least a week now. Um, but what have we What have we now, where are we at, you know, in terms of Rudy Giuliani, in terms of the Republican senators, for example? Um, you know, have we seen people come out and strongly support Donald Trump in his strategy? Have we seen people hide under the blanket and hope that no one notices? And I'm winking at Mike Pence here. Um, You know, what are are the kind of responses that we're seeing to this strategy of not conceding um, and and then, of course, not even um, allowing for the, um, the transition situation to actually start to even receive the funding to start the transition team that um, traditionally starts now. Yeah, so I, I think that is really significant because I have seen a lot of coverage about, you know, people, kind of the usual suspects like Mitt Romney, who, mm. who's a, a senator, a Republican senator, who's kind of come out. And and the way that people characterise his remarks is that it's a, a strong rebuke of Donald Trump and Republicans are starting to turn on Donald Trump. To be honest, I, I don't see that. What I see is Republicans who have for five years continually fallen in line behind Trump, just biding their time, just just waiting to see. And a lot of them, I think, are hoping that he will concede. They're hoping that he will see the writing on the wall and kind of slink away or whatever. They are. They have done that historically. They've kind of waited for him to to back down in in other issues, and then when he hasn't, when he inevitably hasn't, when he's inevitably doubled down, they tend to fall in line behind him. So I I wouldn't have the same kind of faith that I think some commentators do about the Republicans being you know willing to kind of concede this loss. They will be looking to seventy million plus in the in the popular vote and also potentially retaining the Senate or or at least being very close to retaining the Senate and making very clear calculations about how they can hold on to power and how they can kind of cement a conservative bent in the institutions of American politics. And if they think Donald Trump will help them in doing that, in you know if if him refusing to concede is going to help them to hold on to that kind of power. 
power, they'll line up behind him. You know, I don't, I don't think that many of these Republicans, particularly people like Mitch McConnell or even Mike Pence, have an interest in in upholding the integrity of American democracy. They have an interest in retaining power, and and I think that's how we have to understand their behaviour. And again, you know, you can see that in in all of the people that Trump has appointed in the administration, from you know, kind of low level officials who don't usually get much attention, who are doing things like refusing to sign the letter that opens federal funding for the Biden transition team to start working on getting, you know, their cabinet in place to get their nominations in place and to kind of start understanding what it is the Trump administration is doing. I think Trump is the, is the kind of guy who cannot process the humiliation of a loss and will attempt to burn it all down at, you know, as he goes. And we see that with him, you know, he's just fired the secretary of defense, Mark Esper, via tweet. Um, Esper has now said he's worried Trump's going to fire the head of the CIA and and all these other organisations. Um, and, and that's kind of what we have to remember, you know, as much as Trump is potentially that kind of turtle on its back and how that is, like, it is a, a funny and very poignant image, it's also true at the same time that Donald Trump is the president and remains the president until the 20th of January and has all the powers of the presidency at his disposal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And that is really disturbing. And one of the things that was interesting is that um, Trump wanted Esper to use the military, the US military forces um, in law enforcement during those um, Black Lives Matter protests across the US. So the fact that he's gotten rid of someone who was not willing to do that um, in a in a wide scale sense um, is interesting and maybe indicative of what's to come. I hope it's not. Um, but it does seem like, as Trump has done with judicial appointments, he's setting up um, situations to work in his favour. And uh, that, to me, is quite disturbing. Yeah, look, I, I totally agree. And I've, I've had a few questions recently about, you know, about Trump's powers and, like, you know, the kind of absolute nightmare scenario with, you know, can Trump still launch the nukes? And the answer to that question is is yes, because he he's the President of the United States. But until the 20th of January. But again, it kind of goes back to that question, Amy, I think you're getting at, that it's about how people around him respond mm. and and how, how if they respond with integrity or, or if they respond with a desire to kind of hold on to power. And the danger in the American system that whether we're dealing with political appointees is that Trump can, you know, put people in and has put people in who will support him no matter what he does. Um, so, again, see, I'm doing this. I do it every time, Amy. I'm always <laughs> do, do making making things seem seem very bleak. But it is it, it is not as as much as you know having Trump lose an election and and leave the White House is a, a moment of enormous triumph, I think, for the forces that have been opposed to Trump and the forces of American democracy. It's also not a time for complacency. It's not a time Mm. to think that everything's kind of magically going to go back to being stable and safe because we still have to grapple with this president as president for, for a couple of months yet, but also with the forces that he has really harnessed. You know, he didn't create these divisions and and these problems in American society, but he's harnessed and, and emphasised them and they're, they're not going away even when, when and if he does leave the White House. Mm, absolutely. And let we won't finish on a doom and gloom note. Okay. Let's talk about Joe Biden um, and Kamala, I'm going to say Kamala Harris. I've practised that all weekend. Um, and those 
two uh, politicians we saw come out on Sunday noon, or a bit afternoon really it was, um, giving their victory speech and it was quite healing and reaffirming and um, calming, I would say, mm. to watch someone who even the banners around them I think had the word empathy um, as being like the major trait of a Biden presidency, which was, you know, pretty striking, I've got to say, to see, because usually, um, you know, the words are kind of like action words or yeah. hyper-masculine. And this is something that has, um, you know, traditionally been seen as something that's a, a feminine trait. Of course it isn't. Um, you know, it's not exclusive to women. But to see Joe Biden and Kamala Harris uh, push this idea of unity and empathy and reaching out and um, calming things down, being s focused on science in their response to COVID and um, Joe Biden saying that the first thing he will do on Monday, which he's already done now, is to establish a coronavirus advisory committee, which he's done um, of 13 different people who are, you know, experts in the field. Um, you know, all these things were very reassuring, I think, to a number of people. And Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were also seeking to reassure the other half of the nation, at least those who voted, um, that if, even if you voted for, you know, Republicans and Donald Trump, we want, we want to represent you. And um, that is something that Joe Biden had already been saying in the presidential debates is, I'm not a president you know, just for one side, I'm a president for all Americans. We are the United States of America. So he was, it seems, building on the rhetoric that he'd already established. Um, what are your thoughts on the way that, that those speeches played out? They weren't, I don't think they were necessarily like the most memorable speech in all of time, but they did seem to serve their purpose. I think they did. I think that's exactly right. You know, I don't I don't think they'll kind of go down in the in the history of the United States as the best speeches of all time or anything like that, Amy, I agree with you there. But I think Biden Biden and Harris did exactly what they needed to do. You know, he Biden came out and sought to to kind of calm some of the volatility of American politics to to reassure Americans that he cares about them, you know, in contrast to the con the current occupant of the White House, Biden has really leaned into this this figure of, of empathy and shared grief. When you know we can't forget, we're now up to to two hundred thirty seven thousand plus Americans have died. So almost everybody in the country is going to know somebody who is is either ill or has been killed by this global pandemic. And so Biden is is right, I think, to to share the grief of Americans and to to kind of make it his first priority to to address that and to focus on governing. And I think what he did in that speech in, in kind of focusing on those issues was was pivot really well to to focusing on the future and to kind of, as we were talking about earlier, to, to drawing a line un, under kind of Donald Trump and the Trump era and to say now is the time to move forward. And in that way, it kind of it also kind of at least a little bit takes the wind out of what, what Donald Trump is trying to do, which is to keep the focus on him and to keep the focus on the results of the election. Biden, by not focusing on that and by not even really mentioning Trump, he, he might have mentioned him once in that speech um, or, or it was in the context of people who had voted for him. He's mm -hmm. taking the focus off Trump and, and, again, sort of taking away some of his power. And in concert, in concert with the media coverage, 
I think that's potentially been quite effective in in undoing some of that um, dominance that that Trump has had over the media narrative. So I think in that way it it was really important. And also I think the the acknowledgement by both Harris and Biden of the people who voted for them, you know, the people who did the work of politics in places like Georgia in registering people to vote and and working so hard at the grassroots level to get Biden elected. I think there was a real acknowledgement there of that work and and also the the fact that people now felt like they could they could take a breath. You know, people had been so many people I think had been so frightened for so long with good reason, you know, of, mm. of been frightened of Trumpism and and Trump and Trump supporters because of the of the actual bodily threat that that Trumpism has posed to so many Americans. I think that this, these speeches were an acknowledgement of that and and also kind of embodying a hope that, that that might change, that things might start to change in America, but also that things like systemic racism, um, you know, climate action, white supremacy, et cetera, are things that are going to be really difficult to tackle and that this isn't, this isn't over. You know, I suppose this is really only the start of something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um I think what I loved about that um, speech as well was that uh, Joe said that he's Jill's husband, <laughs> which I think spoke to so many women. Um, but it was also great that he mentioned she was a teacher. Mm. You know, you're going to have a first lady who's a teacher and, you know, this is a whole new tone. Um, and it and the first lady does have a lot of influence as well and can do a lot of good, as Hillary Clinton showed when she was first lady. She um, had so much substance and policy focus in her role and it's really up to the first lady to decide what she does mm-hmm. um so you know it's re- going to be very interesting to see um biden and the harrises in the white house um because they do represent a lot of um, diversity and diverse experience um in their lives and the types of um, families that they have as well um i do want to pick up on the other races before we finish and i'm talking about the House and the Senate, um, and these are two very, very important races because um, they do affect whether Joe Biden can actually easily or fairly easily get his policies through to actually enact them. And, of course, the president does have power in terms of, um, you know, signing executive declarations and these types of things. But uh, particularly looking at the House, it seems that the Democrats didn't do as well as they would have liked. And um, it was great to see some people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and um, people who she uh, would see as her political allies on the um I wouldn't say it's radical left, but the more progressive left, um, you know, actually being elected. But we did see, you know, them not do so well in the House as I think they would have expected. And then we saw the Senate result, which is now tied at, I think it's 48. And that means that we will see Senate runoffs in January um, decide whether Joe Biden will have control of the Senate, the Democrats, and and be able to actually do a lot more and do what he would like to do, I'm sure, which is get a lot done in his first term and potentially his only term, depending on, you know, how well he is. Yeah, that's right. I think a lot will come down to what happens in these races. So you're right, 
Amy, that the Democrats in the in the House of Representatives didn't do as well as they had hoped. They they in fact lost some seats, but they will retain their majority. Mm. That that majority is safe. It's interesting to see the um, the fights are already starting about why that has happened. With that that very usual conversation about you know it was because we we tacked too far to the progressive left. No, it was because we were you know making making appeals to centrists. We need to appoint centrists like Republican John Kasich to the cabinet. No, we need to point only Democrats you know this this has started already like in, in barely even the day after and it will be very interesting to see what happens there but I think the house is is safe for, for Democrats but as you say the, the Senate is going to be critical because any kind of legislative agenda that Biden wants to get through has to go through the Senate and it, and it will come down to Georgia so Georgia has a system where the candidate the winning candidate needs an outright, outright majority and and no senators got that in this elections. So there'll be a runoff in January. So we're going to have to wait until January to know if Biden has got the Senate. Um, I, I sort of, as I understand it, the best Democrats can hope for is a 50-50 split in, in the Senate, in which case Kamala Harris, the vice president, ends up having the tie-breaking vote. In which case, you know, Biden will, the Biden-Harris administration is going to have to hold together a very diverse coalition of, of Democratic senators in order to get an agenda through. And that is going to be incredibly difficult, I think, especially for those really big ticket reforms, things like uh, climate action, um, addressing systemic racism, even economic stimulus, getting that through the Senate, I think will be very difficult. And Biden can, he can govern, you know, as much as he can through executive order. Um, You know, for example, he can rejoin the Paris Agreement by executive order. The trouble with doing that is that that kind of doesn't allow for really long-lasting systemic reform because executive orders can be pretty easily undone either by Congress or through the courts or, of course, by, you know, the next president, especially if they're from an opposing the opposing party. So so this, I think, will be very difficult for Biden. But he look, he will prosecute the argument that he has been in the Senate for a long time. He knows how it works and he has a history of, of bipartisanship, of working across the aisle. That's been part of his pitch the whole time that you know he can work with republicans he 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 sees he sees the good in everybody i think sometimes mm. to his to his detriment but he will do his best i think to work with republicans in in that regard um but what will be much more effective for democrats is is to win those senate races in georgia and we i think we'll just see eye-watering amounts of money thrown at georgia <laughs> in order to win those races yeah, I, I agree. That's going to be really interesting. And you did mention at the top of the program Stacey Abrams, who you've mentioned in the past as well um, in terms of her experience, um, you know, really having an election taken from her. Yeah. Um, and she has just done an amazing job of um, working the ground campaign, getting, you know, over 800,000 voters registered in that state um, and people, you know, think there should be a statue a statue of Stacey Abrams and I'm sure many people agree that, you know, she's made a, an enormous contribution and she still is um, in these Senate runoffs. She's already um, mobilising people and that's, you know, really exciting to see that there are these really amazing go get em politicians who are, you know, out there making a difference and doing the things that AOC is trying to get people to do, which is grassroots, bottom-up mm. uh, campaigning and not relying on top-down. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And I think in a lot of the races we've seen in, in Georgia, in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, it's it's been really obvious that it's that kind of organising. It's getting people enrolled and mobilised that, that makes the difference. You know, in places like Philadelphia that we talked about earlier where the African-American vote is has been critical. And it's been really interesting to see that Democrats are immediately focusing on that in Georgia, whereas the Republican senators are issuing joint statements about the integrity of the elections in Georgia and how they're, they're subject to fraud and the secretary, the Georgian Secretary of State has to resign. So in that sense, the Republicans are kind of turning against each other. But I, I think the, the scrutiny on Georgia will just be extraordinary in, in yeah. the months to come because it, it will turn out, I think, to be absolutely critical to, to the success or not of, of a Biden-Harris administration. Mm, it's going to be a quiet January, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Happy summer in Australia and winter yep. in America, guys, because, uh, yeah, it's going to be very loud. Um, Emma, it's been so wonderful to, you know, go through this election in detail and we've, you know, haven't even touched all the things, but I think we'll have to leave it there. But I am so <laughs> grateful to you for your great expertise and insights as always. And it's really always a pleasure to talk with you. So thank you so much for joining us and giving us your time and thoughts today. Oh, thank you, Amy. It's all, it's always my pleasure to, to have this opportunity to really to kind of think it through and, and, and talk about it in a considered way. There's, there's not many other platforms where we can do this, so I am also very grateful to you. Oh, thank you. I've been chatting there with Dr Emma Shortis, who is a research fellow at the EU Centre of Excellence at RMIT, and she is a historian and also the co-host of the Barely Getting By podcast. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins. It's so wonderful to have on board my next guest, Dr. Gabriel De Silva. He is a senior lecturer in chemical engineering from the University of Melbourne. And um, Gabriel is going to be talking with us about bushfire smoke and air pollution, which, you know, to be honest, I think most Australians had to confront to some degree across the summer bushfires that we saw over December and January. It was obviously uh, most pronounced, I think, during January. But um, for those of us who have asthma or allergies, um, bushfire smoke can be very, very terrible. And obviously any other types of respiratory conditions, for example, and cardiac conditions, these are things that mean that if there is um, even a moderate level of air pollution, that people with those types of conditions are disproportionately affected by them um, and experience, you know, some of these horrible um, symptoms from it. But it isn't just the symptoms. So we're going to talk about um, the issue of air pollution, which, you know, Australia hasn't historically um, been known to focus a great deal on, although we have seen conversations about it in places like India and China, um, in London, um, in Europe, many cities in Europe having huge issues with air pollution that um, are way above the legal levels. So to explain all of the science behind it and also the policy um, suggestions and ideas that we should be looking at uh, to to start to deal with it, respond with it and be prepared for it in future. I welcome to the show Gabriel De Silva. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, hi, Amy. Thanks for having me and 
giving us some time to unpack this big issue. Yeah, I'm so, so pleased that we are going to. It was um, an issue that, you know, perhaps um, personally, it did touch me personally, and I know it did for a number of people um, because we were messaging on Twitter and, um, you know, sharing which kind of masks we were buying during this um, bushfire season because going outside in bushfire smoke, even when the fire is very far away from wherever you are actually living, um, it was causing, you know, substantial breathing difficulties and causing, you know, asthma attacks, for example, for a number of people. And that's just one um, segment of the population. Uh, but it, it is not just confined to that. So clearly it had a great deal of significance at the time and it, it did cause a lot of um, behaviour changes in terms of those people who are affected. A lot of people didn't go outside. They were buying air purifiers, um, yeah, staying indoors, ordering in, getting family and friends to go out because they couldn't on, you know, really hazardous days. So first of all, I would love to understand from your perspective, given you are a chemical engineer by trade, when we're thinking about air pollution, um, and we're looking at things like the EPA air quality index, and there are, you know, things with PM meaning particulate matter, and there are different sizes, and there are different um, thing, different chemical compounds in the air. What are some of the like the things that show up that we should be concerned by in the air um, due to air pollution in general? And then what are some of the things? or potentially overlap, but also separate things that occur during a bushfire um, that causes bushfire smokes specifically in those chemical compounds? Mm. Well, that, that's interesting because there's a, there's a whole bunch of chemicals in the air that contribute to what we would think of as being unhealthy or unsafe air. And they change depending on, you know, they change from city to city, country to country, they change through the season. Uh, so there's... There's no one. There's no one thing we can look at and and point to as an indicator of you know is is the air going to be safe or not. So uh, we tend to look at particulate matter as a, a big focus. So we know that the very fine particulate matter. Uh, so this would be PM two point five. So that's particles that are two point five uh, millionths of a meter or smaller, as one of the unhealthiest components but even even that is a, a pretty broad term so what what makes up that particle is very different if it's coming from you know, diesel cars or if it's coming from um, volatile chemicals coming off you know uh, you know fumes from industry that are then changing and transforming in the air or is it the uh, the particles that are in smoke that are coming from bushfire but but no matter no matter where they come from, we know that any any particle that's fine enough to you know, get into your you know penetrate deep into your lungs, get into your bloodstream, every study has shown that they're unhealthy to people. So that's one of the things we focus on. Uh, but then we also so a lot of our emissions come from combustion, and in Australia, we burn a lot of coal for our electricity. Uh, so this makes combustion products like it's basically just ripping the air apart so you've got your air has a lot of nitrogen in it uh, so you have these n2 molecules and if you put enough energy in you can break them apart and and add oxygen to them to make nitrogen oxides 
which are, again, an irritant to people's lungs and uh, respiratory tract. And then they start to react with other chemicals that are in the air and they can make ozone. Ozone is a, is a very, um, is very nasty for people that are asthmatics, for instance. Uh, it also, uh, for instance, attacks plants, so it's uh, unhealthy for, for crop growth. Uh, and then you have other, other pollutants. So if you have sulfur in your fuel, that can make sulfur particles and uh, sulfur dioxide, for instance, that can end up as sulfuric acid, which can acidify rain. Uh, and a number of other maybe trace toxic chemicals that could come from industrial sources or could be formed in the process of combustion. Uh, so there's a whole there's a whole range of contributors to air pollution, and we can't you know we can't look at one compound in the air or we can't look at one source of them. Mm. And that's what I found so interesting is that it's not that simple. There are so many different. Um, you know, groups that you could, that can, as you say, interact and cause all kinds of, um, you know, unforeseen and potentially now foreseen consequences mm -hmm. like acid rain, for example, um, that you mentioned there. And also, you know, one of the things that you mention alongside coal-fired power stations and diesel cars is also wood-fired heaters, which I know are still very popular in Australia. And um, I think... I was quite surprised at the fact that people still do burn wood in their heaters and no doubt it's because that's what was installed in perhaps the 90s when they were very popular. Um, but what's what's the role of, you know, a wood-fired heater? What causes air pollution in that scenario? Yeah, so it, it's basically the smoke and as lovely as it is to, you know, sit in front of a, a mm. roaring fire, they're really horrendous for, for air quality and it's one of the reasons. So we've seen during COVID... And, you know, we've had such widespread lockdowns in Melbourne. Uh, our air quality hasn't particularly improved. So we've seen, you know, in, in, a, lot of, in a lot of the world, as they've responded to, to COVID and people are, you know, travelling less and, um, and the industry is, you know, shut down to some extent, their air pollution has dropped substantially. We haven't really seen that over the, over the previous winter in Melbourne, and and a big part of that is that people are burning wood, and possibly even staying home, and burning wood in their houses as opposed to, you know, their kind of efficiently heated office buildings. Mm. Um, so that that is a real problem we have in Australia, you know, in in Melbourne, in, in Tasmania particularly, uh, and it's something that that is hard to to deal with where you have old houses that maybe have wood fired heaters. Uh, it's also, if you think about uh, ways to cheaply heat your home, it can be, you know, for some people that, um, you know, maybe don't have access to or can't afford better means of heating, it's either go cold or go and, uh, you know, scavenge some wood from somewhere that you can use for heating. So there is a bit of a an equity issue there as well. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. It should be, you know, kept within that context of accessibility to heating because no one should, you know, go without warmth when they're cold if that's all if that's what's available to them and what they can afford and what's accessible to them. So yeah, it's yeah. a really, really important point to note. Um so it's so a thorny issue of how we actually I mean, it would be lovely if we could get rid of wood fire heating, but um we really need to actually, you know, 
put some money into it and, and do it in a in a fair and equitable way, which no one seems to want to uh, tackle. No. Yeah, I think it would have a lot of pushback for, for very, very different reasons. Yes. Um, yeah, including the aesthetic reason that you mentioned. <laughs> um, so talking about uh, bushfire smoke as well, um, and, I mean, to be honest, it was the first time over January that I had ever decided that I needed to consult the EPA every day, like, every, mm. you know, looking at the forecast, how bad's the air going to be today? You know, should I go outside? When should I plan my trip to, you know, X area? Um, you know, should I go on the hazardous day? Probably not, um, mm. if you can avoid it. So these were the kind of new things that I encountered and I know a lot of other Victorians and others around Australia were encountering. Um, this isn't something that's new, though, to many other places around the world who have used air quality indexes in their countries to make decisions about should they wear a mask, should, should they go outside, should they exercise and breathe in quite vigorously some of these particles. So I'm, I am interested in the fact that, you know, our behaviour kind of had to change over summer for some people. For others, perhaps it wasn't as much of a, a front of mind issue. It was an inconvenience, um, but maybe not to them seen as a really important you know, critical health issue. Um, but in terms of the bushfire smoke, we did see, and it did actually cover Australia and even spread across the world to varying degrees. Um, what was the, what's your assessment of the situation? Like, have we ever, or had we ever seen such sustained level of hazardous, um, you know, materials and compounds in our air at that time for such a sustained period? No, we, we hadn't. It was truly unprecedented for Australia. And, you know, I, I was doing a lot of work to try and communicate air quality risks and and get information out to people over summer. And, you know, so were most of my colleagues that, that work in the, the fairly small community of air quality scientists in Australia. Uh, and, and we kept revising our our recommendations and, our, and the information. So as as it was rolling out, we were seeing concentration levels that were unheard of in Australia, so, you know, hadn't been recorded before in Australia and were, you know, phenomenally high on a global standard. So, you know, from Canberra to Sydney and then Melbourne, I think we each occupied the world's dirtiest city at some point during the summer. Um, and so these are, and this this was one of the key recommendations that's come back now from the um the Royal Commission into those fires is that we actually need to get better at and have a universal system for the country of how we rank poor air and when we communicate to people that, you know, the air is just at an unsafe level uh, for, for anyone as opposed to at a level that, you know, will affect people that or, or will more affect people that have pre-existing conditions that are asthmatics or have a respiratory problem. Um, and the other thing we saw uh, over summer was that it just hung around for so long. So there was mm. no respite. And this really makes it much more challenging to deal with unhealthy air when you don't get a, you know, a clear change, for instance, at the end of the day. Because often we would say, well, look, if, if, if you're subjected to hazardous air quality, you want to try and stay inside, hopefully in a 
building that has filtration, but uh, at, in people's homes, that's not always the case. Uh, so you want to try and cut out the outside air from coming in, maybe seal up any, any major gaps, run a filter if you can, uh, maybe filter one particular room in your house that you can uh, kind of seek refuge in. But then once the, once the air clears outside, you want to open up indoors and, and get that clean air in because even, even in the absence of unhealthy air coming in from the outside, uh, we're realising that in, there's lots of indoor sources of air pollution. So cleaning chemicals, uh, soaps and shampoos and cooking all produces particles inside the home. So you're... If you trap, if you isolate your home, you're going to start to build up, um, you know, levels of unsafe chemicals in the house, as well as start to have them move in from outdoors because you can never truly seal off a room. And if if you have this for you know two, three, four, five days in a row, there's it, it gets to the point unless you're filtering that with a you know very efficient and almost industrial system that there's very little you can do to stop that unsafe air coming inside. Yeah. Well, that was that reminds me of one particular dilemma that I experienced and I'm sure others might have as well, which was that when we didn't have a full change but we saw air pollution drop, so it might have gone from like hazardous, um, where are we up to, hazardous to poor, for example, um, you know, you were kind of in this position of, well, I can now smell smoke in my house. Do I open the windows because it's supposedly less, you know, polluted yes. outside? Like, what's the point? You know, if it doesn't go back to good um, or even moderate, um, you know, how do you make these decisions about whether to ventilate the house or to close it off? Yeah, it, it's very it's very challenging. So I, I suppose when you start to see the air quality drop, you can you can begin to close up your house. Uh, but knowing exactly when to open it up again is, is, is unclear. And that's where having really good monitoring networks for air pollution that have you know, a wide range of sensors and detection devices in, you know, in different areas. Um, so not just maybe you know, one in the centre of Melbourne, one out in the west, one in the south is really advantageous. Uh, having to report the and and these this was these are other recommendations from the Royal Commission. Uh, reporting updates on the air quality every hour, not giving a, an average value for the whole day, is useful mm. there. Uh, and then also having really good predictions. So we've got very accurate models that we can build and run to actually predict what's going to happen to the air quality you know, based on the, the meteorolog meteorology, uh, based on the, you know, the source of the emissions and, and the chemical reactions. And if we can get that information out to people to say, look, this is what it means where the air quality is at at the moment, uh, this is what you should do when you're under these kind of conditions. And if it changes in this way, you know, we can, or, or here's how we predict it's going to change, and then we can update that, say, every hour, to tell you where exactly where it's at, to inform decisions that'll help people protect mm. their health. So when we're thinking about air mon monitoring stations, um, I was wondering, you know, if, if we look at Victoria as an example, 
do we have enough? Because, you know, if we think about an area like um, Geelong, for example, you know, there is, that's a, as we discovered during coronavirus, it's a very large city council area with, you know, encompassing coastal regions that do get a sea breeze whenever it actually exists. Um, so, you know, I'm wondering whether it's even accurate to have monitoring stations, as you say, just in one kind of really large, broad region that might encompass really kind of varying landscape um, situations and one that's close to the coastline and one that's further inland and whether there would be differences depending on how inland things are. Because I do remember that Canberra had real issues um, actually getting the smoke out and then having it move. And um, so that seemed like they were kind of disproportionately affected there. Yeah. So Canberra, for instance, is is like a bowl and the, the smoke settles in there and it's hard to get out. It, if you are at the co near the coast and the you get a breeze from offshore, then that's going to help a lot. So certainly, getting a larger monitoring network is something that we need in Australia. But it's challenging because we're you know, such a big country and we're so spread out, uh, and it's not um, you know it requires a serious in serious investment to actually develop that and one of the uh, one of the things the Royal Commission came back and said and this is something we've we've known in the air quality community for a while is that we need to start looking to low cost and medium cost sensors that we can put out a larger number of less expensive detection equipment so as you can imagine maintaining the very accurate large scientific equipment that we need at these stations is expensive. Mm. Um, but if we can get out, and we've seen this in Europe and we've seen this in parts of the US like California, and if we can get into the community small, cheap sensors that are quite accurate and then can be calibrated against the, the bigger you know, state-run facilities, then we can start to create more of a, a mesh of air quality data to get out to people in you know specific localities um, mm. so we see this in melbourne in you know on, on any given day in the west air pollution is typically worse so air quality in the west because there's more industry there and there's a lot of uh, freight and, and diesel trucks tends to be worse than it is in the middle of the city or in the east and the um, in the south and we would like to ideally have a, a finer grid of sensors there uh, and if we, I think, employ some of these lower cost and medium cost sensors, we can start to achieve that and, and get a solution that works for Australia. Mm. So that's a really great point because, yeah, it was a very noticeable difference going driving through Footscray, for example, as compared with the CBD. Mm. Although they were both bad, there were stark differences in the, you know, visibility levels in particular, I remember. Um, in terms of these smaller um, and, you know, these, these air pollution um, monitoring devices that can be smaller and more cost-effective. Are these things, from your perspective, that could be done at a community level without having to wait for the state government or the federal government to decide to, to move, to, you know, create either statewide systems or nationwide um, systems? Like, what are your thoughts on... First of all, the best way that it should, could be done in an ideal world, but also, you know, if political uh, 
politicians aren't particularly mm. um, feeling the urgency, which we've seen, unfortunately, in recent times, are there ways that communities and councils could actually do something about it? There are, and there's, there's precedent for that around the world where, you know, individual communities have, have got together to start to roll out a, you know, low-cost low sensor network. Um, but, I, but to really get, I suppose, validated scientific advice out to people, that, that does need to be rolled into each state's you know, environmental protection agency or equivalent body. Uh, and I think, there, you know, there is a clarion call now that, that we need to do this, we need to expand this in some way. So uh, I'm, I'm, you know, fairly confident that we'll start to see uh, some movement there. And, and, you know, maybe it is, as you say, working with local councils or working with community groups to help establish that. Uh, but to give consistent advice back to people. So there are, you know, there are apps available on your phone, for instance, where, uh, and there are companies that sell, you know, air, air quality sensors that you can put in your home. Um, but we find that, you know, they might use a different metric to report the air quality index. So the one that they, you know, the AQI in, in the US means something different to what it does in China or what it does in India. So we want that to be consistent with the one that we use in Australia, uh, you know, at a national level. So, I, I, you know, some of these things will help, but I think we really do need, do need to move together as a country to get something that uh, that works for us. Mm, yeah, well, let's make sure that we pressure our governments then. Absolutely. If, that, if that's the answer, let's go. Yeah, um, and there, there are, uh, you know, the, the, um, the Natural Disaster Royal Commission handed down some urgent recommendations in this area uh, and they do tend to get listened to. So it's, it is you know, politically tough for governments at all levels to ignore those. So, and if they do, I think, you know, hopefully they do see some, some blowback on them. Yeah. Well, um, let's talk about a couple of other things before we have to wrap up. One of them that's very related to what we've just been discuss uh, discussing is that not only do we need to have sensors that are calibrated correctly, that give the best, most accurate data that are you know, widespread enough to be also, you know, fairly accurate um, based on lo based on location and the advice that's provided, but also um, the air quality index itself, which you highlight as well, um, because you know at the moment um, it is state by state, I believe, and I am I only am quite familiar with Victoria's one, but I know that you know it does kind of seem like it's rather. Um, broad in terms of the air quality categories that are currently available. So there's um, good, moderate, poor, very poor and hazardous. And as you highlight in this article for the conversation, once we got to hazardous, well, some of those hazardous levels were just like literally off the charts. So yeah. in terms of a national air quality index, is there a way to make it more sensitive and more helpful in terms of how we make decisions and categorise what truly is very harmful that we shouldn't actually be breathing in and, you know, risking our health to go outside um, for? Uh, there, there is, or there, there would be, but I think we need to do a bit of research to actually work out what that would look like. And this is particularly, you know, bringing in the health professionals to say, look, here's where you would set set these levels and, and maybe working with social scientists to help communicate that or, 
or find the wording. One of one of the problems is that if you that we can't report things across the country. So what you know what I would like to see is on the on the weather reports every evening, here's the air quality in each of the states today. Here's what our forecast is for this tomorrow, just like you get the the rain forecast. Uh, and to do that, we need something that is consistent from state to state. Uh, I think we also do need a trigger at at some of these, you know, very high levels where we can start to say, look, it's it's at a point that is so unhealthy that we recommend everyone wear a mask, try and protect themselves in some way, and and here's how you might do that. And when and when the levels are ten or 20 times what we regard as hazardous, uh, you know, and, and if we're expecting that, you know, we're going to see more frequent, more widespread bushfires in the future, then I think that's something we need to tackle. But we also need the, the lower bands there to recognise the everyday air pollution that is also unhealthy for us. So it's a, it's a, it's a very challenging thing to do. But we, we saw, so for instance, after the Black Saturday bushfires, something similar where with our fire risk, we needed that that catastrophic level to be added in mm. um, just to tell people, look, you need to you need to leave, you need to, to leave as soon as possible. You need, you need to take action and here are the actions that, that you take. And that's something we don't really have at the moment or, or we do if, if we do it on an ad hoc basis and it varies from state to state. Um, and so in terms of um, thinking about the consequences, um, because we know that a number of people who were in East Gippsland, for example, locally had to be in this kind of smoke. Maybe they had their homes destroyed and, you know, they had far less control over whether they were breathing in hazardous bushfire smoke um, compared to others. Maybe they were in a town hall. Um, There's so many, I guess, issues that it brings up in an emergency kind of sense when we're in that um, acute stage. Mm. So I did want to just quickly touch on also the health impacts that seem to occur like later, you know, we know that, of course, you can have an asthma attack and that can be a very acute crisis um, of your respiratory system, or you can have um, already damaged lungs from other health conditions that can cause really immediate emergency situations. And we saw a really um, high number of people admitted to hospital because of those situations. But we also did see figures saying that um, around 440 Australians died just from inhaling that bushfire smoke over December, January um, from that that period. And that was in the bushfire report. Um, and so I was wondering about that and whether, well, first of all, why um, these, these bushfires do cause such substantial health problems. And I guess not from a medical perspective, but maybe just from the your perspective being a chemical engineer, why we should be concerned. Um, you know, some people might just go, oh, she'll be right, because the, the danger maybe is, you know, in the, the months ahead, for example, rather than on the day that you breathe in this smoke. Yeah, sure. It's, it is hard to get people to maybe appreciate you know, just just how unhealthy it is, or or to t- you know to take action on something that, like you say, might contribute to their health degrading in the long term. Um, but what we see what we see with with the bushfire smoke is that the the pollutants that are of concern if you're in the vicinity of the fire are very different to what is left behind when it gets 
transformed in the air and, and transported into, you know, a town or a city that's far away. So you're, you're left with maybe, you know, we saw this where instead of having that kind of, um, you know, apocalyptic Blade Runner type red skies, in in Melbourne here, the the, the visibility was low, but you had this kind of a, almost a whitish uh, haze, and that's and you didn't necessarily have the smell of the smoke. So, what's creating the you know the smoke smell and the the thick black parts of the ash have been removed, and all that's left behind are these. You know, very very fine particles that are they're so small that they're almost um, gases themselves, and unfortunately these are you know one of the most unhealthy components of air pollution. So it it doesn't you know it doesn't look like smoke and it doesn't smell like smoke anymore, but it it's still almost as unhealthy as you know standing next to um, you know next you know being directly exposed to smoke coming from a fire. Yeah, and so uh, and, just, and part oh, of it. Sorry, I think part of it is getting that message out that even though it may mm. may not look as offensive as as you know the the raw smoke off a fire, it is still very, uh, very, very detrimental to everyone's health. Mm-hmm. And I think you know perhaps those who experience the immediate effects might realise that um, compared with those who have who may not you know, realise and may not have breathing issues at the time um, or not obvious ones to them. Um, Just finally, you did mention wearing masks. Do you think that that is something that moving forward everyone should have, for example, an N95 mask or a respirator of some kind to wear, you know, should it be in their bushfire plan to here's the masks that we all wear, um, you know, should bushfire smoke become an issue? Yeah, and, you know, 2020 we've gotten pretty good at wearing masks yes um, and, and certainly the you know the the uptake of it that I saw over summer and and just the the understanding that you know this is a significant issue that affects almost everyone uh, I, th- I think led led to a bit of that change where people were you know going out getting those n95 masks or res- respirators starting to wear them outside. Uh, and even even though they're different to the the kind of masks we're wearing at the moment because of COVID, um, you know maybe that has normalised mask wearing a little bit, and and people will have them on hand and and be more willing to to put them on when it's you know when it's nasty outside. Yeah, yeah, and make sure that they get it before they sell out, like what happens yes. in summer. <laughs> yeah, do it now. Um, thank you so much, Gabriel. I'm so grateful for your expertise and the fact that you have been um, advocating and trying to get people to understand the science behind air pollution and air quality. So um, your work is clearly very important and uh, no doubt will be ongoing. So we're very grateful today for your time and expertise. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.